Yeah, I have my um, hooded jacket on. <laughs> my hood pulled up. Seasonally appropriate attire for the summer. That was magazine publisher and food writer Stephen Satterfield. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, we feature musicians, bartenders, journalists, and other San Franciscans talking about living, working, and doing their thing here. It's a way to get to know your neighbors. Welcome to episode 33, part two. In part one, Stephen shared the story of his time at Nopa Restaurant, and he talked about his work with students at IDB Wells High School. In this podcast, Stephen tells the story of his evolution from those gigs to launching and running Whetstone Magazine. Here's Stephen. All right, so maybe I will talk about the work that I do now that I alluded to in my intro uh, as a publisher of a magazine, because the work that I do now is firmly rooted in my time at NOPA and in San Francisco. Um, And so I think that's relevant. So uh, part of my experience at NOPA was really unusual um, because the people who owned the business were really unusual in that they really believed in investing in their uh, their workforce. They really believe in investing in uh, people who have shown an aptitude or interest in a particular subject and finding out a way to uh, bring that into uh, their own business. Yeah. And so with, with me, that was... Um, a role that started off as like kind of a gatekeeper or a communications person. Uh, so we would be getting a lot of inbound interest and inquiries from uh, newspapers and writers. Uh, and so I had to kind of filter these emails and say like, this is sound, this is not. Mm-hmm. And so in doing that work, uh, it became apparent to me that, you know, we were reliant on conventional media to tell a story about our restaurant that was really more complex than they understood or were capable of sharing. And um, it really started to bug me because I I felt that their reporting was was undermining all of the work that we were doing Hmm. internally. And so I convinced my employers that what we ought to do uh, is create our own media channel, our own platform and our own voice that would kind of uh, decenter the relationship with the conventional media and you know the stories that were were really proprietary for yeah. us. Um, and surprisingly, they went for it. I mean, we weren't paying. We were already a busy restaurant, so there's that. They had money to invest in it, mm-hmm. but they also, um, you know, they had a sort a sort of belief in what I was appealing to, which is like we don't need to put a third party in between our stories and our restaurant and the public, we should be able to disseminate this directly. And so, and so they did. And so we created uh, together a project called Nopalize and Nopalize uh, became a multimedia platform about our restaurant, but really it was more about our restaurant through the context of purveyors that we worked with people who worked for us and um, who we were in community with. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was a true multimedia account in that we had uh, editorial, we were doing tons of videos, we had a podcast, um, and this was from like, you know, 2012 to 2015, so we were 
pretty far uh, ahead of our time, I think, in terms of yeah, absolutely. The, the restaurant taking ownership of its own message and using all the available uh, media platforms. Was it all run by... Not, not only yourself, but like other staff. Well, it was all run by employed. me. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> but uh, I mean, we were. It was in partnership with like tons of people. I mean, we worked with dozens of creatives, some of whom were also uh, employees of the the restaurant group. So mm-hmm. Nopa and Nopalito, mm-hmm. which is really kind of its own powerful uh, unfolding because we. I mean, as the uh, service industry is famous for had so many people in house who were moonlighting, you know, to, to support some other dream or career. Right. So we had writers, we had photographers, we had uh, people who were involved in film and this became a really great outlet for them to have the, their two worlds collide, you know, the, the thing that they were pursuing outside of work, but also this community that they could speak directly to and about from a from a firsthand perspective um so that became a really cool part of it but then also you know we just use social media to summon other people from our community our creative community here in san francisco um to be a part of the project so we was this a daily like how, uh, eventually to... it became my my full-time job so okay. in 2015 it became the thing i did for real and we added another component where we were taking trips uh, or we, we were basically facilitating trips for the public uh, to go visit local farms. Um, it was a pretty involved and pretty ambitious project. Yeah. Um, and so I would say it started in earnest in 2012. Uh, and then by that third year of me really, really working on it and us developing kind of an identity and a following around the project, we agreed that it would become my, my full-time job, which okay. was obviously just so lucky and incredible. Yeah. Like, an unbelievable experience. Yeah. So um, you're off the floor. Full yeah. yeah work, working from home. Yeah. Um, and learning, learning how to produce, uh, you know, with time being both uh, a resource um, and also as all freelancers know, like something that can potentially undermine your, your projects. Right. I mean, everything in media and production is based on time management and deadlines. Um, and so there was a really important learning curve for me as a creative person uh, about how to manage a team, how to manage deadlines, how to communicate a shared vision, um, and really just how to execute. And mm-hmm. so um, I did that for most of 2015. And after covering local food stories for a few years, I wanted to expand this same way of analyzing food and agriculture into uh a broader global sense. So um, that became the precursor for Whetstone, which is, um, whereas in San Francisco and with Nopalize, we're looking at local food culture. Um, that led me into looking at local food culture from a global point of view, um, which came to fruition via a, a print publication, Whetstone. And here you are, three issues? Uh, yeah, in? almost almost three years later. So uh, 2015, 2016, it took me uh, the better part of both of those years to really understand what I was doing, to understand the value <laughs> like, proposition. Oh shit, I made a magazine. I mean, it was really, you know, <laughs> I knew what we were trying to do. Yeah. 
but um, like anyone who's in the pr- very early stages of whatever they're starting, I mean, there's so much flailing and figuring out before you really launch. Um, and we did a couple crowdfunding campaigns that uh, did not pan out. So we had to start over. There is a very um, difficult and personal loss that I had with the person who I started uh, Whetstone with. Okay. Uh, passing tragically in oh, a car sorry. wreck. So um, that almost thwarted the project. I had thought about stopping it after that happened. Um, but once I committed to really doing it, um, I would say in about the summer of 2016, um, it took me about a year of really honing everything and getting the stories together, getting the roster together, uh, making all kinds of deals and agreements and good faith and not having money, but really, really having a clear vision around what we were trying to make and then selling that vision uh, to the point where we were able to produce the first edition, which came out in May of 2017, so a year ago exactly. And um, one year later, we are uh, just a couple weeks away from presenting our third edition of Whetstone. So it took us a while to get started, but um, the velocity of the magazines uh, is increasing, and um, we're starting to have a much better sense of who we are, where we, what we want to be when we grow up, and just kind of our value proposition of what we're, what we're producing in the world right now. Mm-hmm. The thing with food media is uh, a lot of the same frustrations that I had when I first started Nopalize um, continue to be persistent in the broader landscape of food media. So that is to say most of the coverage um, is really about chefs, it's about restaurants, and um, I don't want to say it's about glorifying them, Mm -hmm. but it's really uh, created a dynamic between readers and the publication where the currency is about a chef and about uh, a restaurant as sort of an iconic or institutional mm-hmm. place. Um, like a, what I call thingification of, of society. Like okay. everything is a thing. Yeah. And it, whether it's a chef or just a personality, it's like it's always deeper. It's always deeper. And it's... um. And you start to understand the business of media and you understand why these chefs need to become commodities to sell advertising and how it all works together. Right. Uh, And needless to say, that is uh, where the least inspiring stories come from in food, but really anything. And so um, what we do that is is intentional and differentiated from that kind of content is we focus on stories at the point of origin. And what that means is... Uh, We take sort of a holistic, anthropological look at a simple question of where did this thing come from? And we have, for instance, uh, traced the origins of corn back to 10,000 years in Mexico, um, which was an amazing experience of me traveling back and forth to Oaxaca. Um, I did a similar sort of origin story. Uh, about viticulture which took me to the Republic of Georgia Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) there's other stories that I've commissioned um, about the origins of cacao both in uh, Ecuador and Peru and so through that sort of one primary lens where we're able to uh, use research existing research and our own curiosity to kind of evaluate uh, food items that are ubiquitous in our lives but that 
from a historical perspective, we know very little about. And we found that through this point of view and just asking where a thing comes from, the, the stories that are teased from that are really remarkable and substantive and lead us into dozens of other little stories or curiosities that make us feel like we can fuel the content side of this publication and this company for a really long time to come. So that's what we're focusing on. I'm like, if I had money, if I was one of those people, I'd be like, do it. Uh, well, you know, that was good. We'll see. No, that's, that's awesome. We'll see where it goes. I think the cool thing for us is the response that we've gotten. Yeah. Um, we were testing a hypothesis about the aptitude of consumers and about readers and people who love eating. And we really felt that the traditional media really didn't respect the, the consumers and really kind of were force feeding them content that they didn't necessarily ask for. Pun intended. Oh, we're just, yeah, that's a really, I mean, I mean, now it is. Yeah. I need to take credit for that. Um, so, so yeah, I think just with many other things, uh, when in the, in a conventional sense, what ends up happening is that the way that people have always done things becomes the way to do things going forward because they're trying to protect, um, they're trying to protect either their own power and, or they're trying to protect their power indirectly by protecting, um, essentially the, the business or the economy yeah. around the thing that they are selling. Their proprietary interest or, of, I don't know. Of course, because it's like, it, well, you know? this is the way we've always done it. Yeah. And this is how I've always gotten paid and I want to yeah. keep getting paid. So I'm going to stick with what I know. Yeah. There's very little incentive to, uh, to be imaginative about, you know, what kinds of stories to put in a magazine or on yeah. a website. Um, because again, it's based on this whole other economy of promoting and sort of exploiting. I don't want to say exploiting in the sense of like, I mean, a lot of times it's, it's consensual in a way and sure. that the chefs are uh, also eager to commodify themselves for a promise of getting out of the kitchen. So, you know, you could see the ways in which this becomes like a, an insular and self fulfilling thing where, um, we ha- we aren't able to get more interesting stories right. because there's no there's no ecosystem that supports interesting stories. The ecosystem just supports you know the lowest barrier to entry and the chefs and the restaurants who are willing to participate in that ecosystem in some right. fashion. I mean, one of our cornerstones is that in order to really appreciate something, you have to understand it. You have to know it. And so we are constantly encouraging people to know more about their food. We're constantly encouraging people to deepen their relationship with the food that they eat because in deepening that relationship, there's all kinds of radical changes that are on the other side of that. Everything from the quality of food that you eat to the ways that you think about your role in the world as a consumer, the way you show up in the world as a consumer but also in your in your ability to have more empathy for human beings, you know, more awe and gratitude for 
all of the incredible innovations in agriculture and communities that have come before us, indigenous populations most often. Um, it gives us awe and gratitude for the people who are continuing to work in the fields as farmers and feed us. Because when you're connected to the origins of your food, whether you're talking in the context of like millennia or a farmer's market, like it's impossible to not have that sense of awe and gratitude when you realize how fucked we would be if we had to feed ourselves. Right. And so we don't like to, you know, cram these messages and people's uh, inboxes or mailboxes in a way that feels like pious or that we're, we're preaching about something. We obviously have a point of view, but we think it's a lot more interesting and effective to create a larger historical frame of reference about food and around food, and then just trust that people are sophisticated enough to arrive at their own conclusions and opinions about what they want their relationship to be like. Whetstone Magazine will be having an issue release party next Thursday, June 21st at Parish Trust on Divisadero. The party starts at 6.30. We recorded this episode at 4505 Barbecue in May 2018. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald, a.k.a. Joe Bigale. Film photography for the episode is by Michelle Kilfeder. Storied San Francisco is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please follow us there and share the episode you like. Michelle's photos of the storytellers are up on the website, which is storiedsf.com. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. You can email us at storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Check back next week when we'll hear from writer and former Chronicle columnist Adair Lara. (laughs) 